evening and welcome to this autumn's Twilight Thriller Radio Plays. I'm very excited. I'm Michelle Denise Norton. I'm the creative engine for Upstart Arts. But tonight we are bringing you Sherlock Holmes because I have always loved Sherlock Holmes and um, as and so, so do a lot of other people. And so when I asked if anyone wanted to write Sherlock Holmes plays, people said yes. And so here we are with modern Sherlock Holmes adaptations. Tonight is by Joan Consilio. It turns um, Watson's reminisces into podcasts, which actually works really well. So you're in for a treat. Um, thank you for coming. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Twilight Thriller Radio. This evening we bring you the adventure of the Devil's Foot, where we can actually ask the question, will Sherlock survive? Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I'm your host, Eve Doyle. And this is Twilight Thriller Radio, where we talk about all things true crime. If you're listening for the first time, make sure you finish by rating and reviewing us on your podcast platform of choice. Joining us today is one of the coolest guests I think I've ever had on the show. You might know him from his time as a guest judge on Britain's Next Top Detective. That's right, I have here Dr. John Watson, noted partner of crime solver extraordinaire Sherlock Holmes. Dr. Watson, thanks so much for appearing with us today. Um, I have to admit though, my first question isn't about crime. It's about, well, you. I've been trying to get you or Mr. Holmes to appear on my show for, I don't know, three years now and you've always turned me down. So to what do I owe the honor? And I'm not complaining, by the way. As you know, AC, I've been recording from time to time some of the curious experiences and interesting recollections that I associate with my long acquaintance with Mr. Sherlock Holmes. And to be honest, I have continually been faced by difficulties caused by his, let's call it an aversion to publicity. He's sort of a somber and cynical sort, you know. He absolutely abhors popular applause and Honestly, nothing has ever amused him more at the end of a successful case than to hand over the actual exposure to some official. Then he stands back, smiles that cynical smile of his, you know, the one Buzzfeed photogs love to capture, and listens to the general chorus of misplaced congratulations. It's definitely not the case that we don't have interesting cases to talk about, but given my friend's attitude, there really hasn't been much for me to say publicly. And of course, you understand that my participation in some of his adventures was always a privilege that required, in return, 
my discretion. So you can imagine how considerably surprised I was that I received a postcard from Mr. Holmes last Tuesday. Oh, he never has been known to text or email where a postcard would serve in the following terms. Now LS is beyond their reach. Why not tell them of the Cornish horror, strangest case I have handled? Hmm, we'll get to later on what I believe brought this case to mind just now for Holmes. For my part, reading his card, I thought, here's my chance. The benefit to Holmes's postal mail fixation, of course, is that I had time to message you before another postcard could arrive and cancel the whole works. Once I sent you that message, I went to my storage unit and pulled out all my taped recordings from the case. And now here we are. I'm absolutely ready to put things out there for your listeners. Dr. Watson, I'm so glad you did. And I'm, I'm sure my thrillers are excited to get started too. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, I need to make sure I tell you about the amazing new educational opportunity we're offering here at Twilight Thriller Radio. Is listening to Sherlock's genius making you feel like a below average member of the Metropolitan Police Force? Are your investigative procedures sluggish and imprecise? Do you long for the crime-solving spotlight? Skip the months of research and go straight to proving you know more than anyone you have ever met with Sherlock's Monograph of the Month Club. Learn from the master detective himself on such topics as the variability of human ears, the typewriter and its relation to crime, the tracing of footsteps. Receive a free autographed copy of The Whole Art of Detection when you sign up for the automatic payment plan and choose the Baker Street Irregulars upgrade for a bonus copy of Sherlock's Book of Life. Do you want to be guilty of malingering? Of course not. Type twilightthrillerradio.com into your browser to start your consultative detective career today. Armchair not included. And we're back with Dr. John Watson, partner of the legendary Sherlock Holmes, who's going to tell us about, what did you call it again, John? A Cornish horror? Exactly, AC. Picture it. Cornwall 2007. It was spring. And my friend Holmes, who normally has an iron constitution, seemed pretty drained. It's understandable, you know, in the face of constant hard work of the most exacting kind. And I'd be lying if I didn't say it could be aggravated by the occasional, let's say, some unhealthy choices of his own. At any rate, in March of that year, Holmes' physician absolutely ordered him to put aside all his cases and go on a complete mental health break if he wanted to avert a breakdown. I can tell you, AC, Holmes did not then and does not now take the faintest interest in the state of his health. His mental detachment, you might call it, I mean, that's absolute. But the threat of being permanently unable to work, that did it. And in light of that, he was willing to give himself a complete change of scene and air. So that's how we got to where this story takes place, relaxing together in what was actually one of the first Airbnbs, a little cottage near a bay at the farthest end of Cornwall. It's a pretty unusual spot, 
but that suited Holmes and his bad mood fine, I think. You see Cornwall in all the vacation advertisements, right? Rolling lonely moors, uh, occasional old church towers where a village used to be. Then there are the strange stone monuments all over the moors, those irregular burial mounds, earthworks that make archaeologists a dream of their next find. It's glamorous in its own way, a little mysterious, right? For what it's worth, that really appealed to my friend Holmes. He spent a lot of his time just taking these long walks by himself on the moors. He didn't even have a cell phone at the time. He carried around this beat-up guide to the former Cornish language, and he was thinking about publishing some paper on how we think it's related to Chaldean, brought up here by people trading tin, and yes, that is just as boring as it sounds, AC. I do not know another person for whom writing an academic paper is relaxing, but there you are, and there we were. Both bored, but me loving it, and him not. So when a problem dropped itself on our literal doorstep that was more intense and more mysterious and more engrossing than any of those homes had left behind in London, he was absolutely delighted. I was maybe less so. I was loving the quiet life. We had a nice routine and bam, just like that, we ended up in the middle of what do people call it? A series of unfortunate events. Got a ton of press, not just in Cornwall, but in all of Western England. Your older listeners, you know, the ones who were at least born at that time, you, you do have those, right, AC? Maybe they'd remember this as what the press called the Cornish horror. I can tell you, what was reported was not even close to the full story. And now, 13 years later, I can finally give you and your listeners the real details. Well, we can't wait, John. And thrillers, don't forget that your donations to our Patreon are supporting guests like John. So please show him some love while you're listening. John, are you ready to take it away? Thanks, AC, and thanks, Thrillers. So, here we were in Cornwall, in this little town called Tredanic Wallace. You know the type. Cottages for a couple hundred people, old moss-covered church, actual parish vicar. The vicar's where we start, actually. His name was Mr. Roundhay. And besides his clergy role, he was sort of an amateur town historian and archaeologist. And so Holmes had been talking him up about his tin trade language similarity business. Roundhay was middle-aged, kind of rotund, friendly, full of all the local folk tales. He had us to tea at the vicarage, and that's how we met Mr. Mortimer Trigenus. He was some kind of hedge fund investor. And he decided to do a long-term rental of his own from Mr. Roundhay to give himself someplace quiet to work. The vicar wasn't complaining, you know. The tithing from a couple hundred cottages mostly used as rentals isn't exactly great. But I'll tell you what, AC, you couldn't find two more different housemates. Mr. Trigenis was this skinny little man with glasses and a stooped over way of walking that made me think he could really use a good massage or several. 
We were there with them at tea, and I remember the vicar just kept talking, but all Trigenis would do was sit there and look at the floor, kind of mopey. I figured the markets were down again, housing bubble and all that, so I didn't think too much of it. I did, though think it was pretty strange when the two of them came running into our cottage on a Tuesday in mid-March. Mr. Holmes, the most extraordinary and tragic thing has happened to us during the night. It is the most unheard of business. I think it has got to be a gift from God that you are here now. You are, to be blunt, the one man in all of England who can help us. Hmm, that's certainly flattering, though almost certainly untrue. Have a seat, both of you, and maybe one of you could tell me what this is about? Mr. Roundhay, should I tell him, or do you want to? Well, Trigenis, as you seem to have made the discovery, whatever it may be, and the vicar seems to be hearing it from you second-hand, it seems to me it would be efficient if you would just get on with it yourself, yes? Not important. Are you going to tell me, or aren't you? Uh, perhaps I had better say a few words first, and then you can judge if you will listen to the details from Mr. Trigenis, or whether maybe it had better head out to the scene of the crime of this mysterious affair. <clears throat> to start, our friend, Mr. Trigenis, here spent last evening with his two brothers, Owen and George, and his sister, Brenda, at their house over in Trigenic Wartha. You know, near the old stone cross upon the moor. Hmm, I know the place. Go on. So, you see, Trigenis here, he left his family shortly after ten o'clock. They were all playing cards at their table, laughing, healthily, all that. Well, sir, Trigenis gets up early to check the overseas market, you see. Without much else going on, he was walking over to say hello to his family when a car pulled up. It was our village physician, Dr. Richards, and he told old Mortimer here that he had just been asked to make an urgent call to urgent house call to Trigenic Wartha, and of course Mort went with him. That's where things get odd, Mr. Holmes. When Mort got to Trigenic Wartha, things were just in an absolute extraordinary state. His two brothers and his sister were around the table exactly as he had left them, with cards still all in front of them. His sister was laying back in her chair. Stone dead, I tell you. And their two brothers, they sat on either side of her and they were laughing, shouting, singing. It's like they were absolutely insane. All three of them, the dead woman and these two absolutely disillusional men all had a look of just complete and total horror on their faces. There was no sign of anyone in the house except Mr. Logan, the gardener. He's an American who came here to Cornwall for a quieter and more relaxing life, which clearly did not have, he did not have, at least not today. He said he had taken an ambient and heard absolutely nothing at all. And nothing had been stolen or moved, and there is absolutely no explanation of what on earth could literally have frightened a woman to death and knocked two strong men out of their senses. <clears throat> there is a situation, Mr. Holmes, in a nutshell, and if you could help us to clear it up, we'd certainly be grateful. Hmm. Interesting. I'm willing to look into the matter. 
On the face of it, it would appear to be a pretty exceptional case. Have you been there yourself, Mr. Roundhay? <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Holmes, I have not. Mr. Trudez came back to the vicary and told me, and for my part, I thought we'd better just get right over here to consult with you. How far is it to the house where this tragedy occurred? About a mile. Do you want me to call us a cab? <laughs> a cab? Ridiculous. <sighs> we'll walk the mile over there together. But before we start, Mr. Trigenis, I have to ask you a few things. Ask what you like, Mr. Holmes. I hate to talk about it, but I swear I will tell you the truth. Tell me about last night. Well, Mr. Holmes, I went over to dinner, like the vicar said, and my older brother George, he wanted us all to play cards afterward. We sat down about nine o'clock, and it was maybe a quarter past ten when I told them I'd better go. They wanted to keep playing, so I left them all sitting round the table, happy as could be. Who let you out? Mr. Logan had gone to bed, so I let myself out. I, I shut the whole door behind me. The window of the room where they sat was closed, but the blinds were up. This morning it was all the same, door, window, exactly as it was, and no reason to think that any stranger had been to the house. Yet there they sat, driven mad with terror, and rendered dead of fright with her head hanging over the arm of the chair. I'll never get the sight of that room out of my mind as long as I live. Hmm. The facts, as you tell them, are certainly... We'll say remarkable. I think it that you have, uh, sorry, I take it you, that you have no theory yourself about what might have happened? Have you seen Poltergeist, Mr. Holmes? I think it's witchcraft or possession or something. It's diabolical. Something went into that room and drove them crazy. What human contrivance could do that? As it turns out, if the matter is beyond humanity, it is certainly beyond me. I'm going to suggest we start by exhausting all natural explanations before we fall back on such an unlikely theory. As to yourself, Mr. Trigenis, I take it you were on the outs in some way from your family, since they lived together and you were over here with our vicar friend. <clears throat> uh, yes and no, Mr. Holmes. Essentially, it's all water under the bridge now. We had a family business, uh, but we sold it, and we all got enough <clears throat> money out of the deal to either retire or take up some kind of passion project, uh, like my investments, you know. Uh, I won't deny that they had what I think my baby brother likes to call strong feels uh, about the division of the <coughs> money. And yes, that came between us for a while, but it was all forgiven and forgotten. And we were back to spending time together when we could. Looking back at the evening you spent together, does anything stand out in your memory as throwing any possible light on the tragedy? Think carefully, Mr. Trigenis, for any clue that could help me. I can't think of anything at all, sir. Your siblings were in their usual spirits? Never better. 
Were they anxious people? Did they ever have panic attacks? That sort of thing. Nothing of the kind. You have nothing to add, then, that could assist me? Um, there is one thing that occurs to me. <clears throat> While we were at the table, my back was to the window and George was facing it. I saw him once stop and stare over my shoulder, so I turned round and looked too. The blind was up and the window shut, but I could just make out the bushes on the lawn, and it seemed like maybe, just for a moment, I saw something moving there. I couldn't even say if it was a person or some animal, but I just thought there was something there. When I asked him what he was looking at, he told me that he had the same feeling. That's all that I can say. Didn't you investigate? No, we all decided it was probably nothing. So when you left them, no one had, I don't know what to call it, some premonition of evil? None at all. Hmm. Well, next thing. I am not clear how you came to hear the news so early this morning. It's like Mr. Roundhay said. I get up early to check the market overseas, and usually I take a quick walk before breakfast. As it turns out, sometimes my sister cooks bacon, and if I happen by, you know... Anyway, this morning, I had barely started walking when the doctor came by and said Mr. Logan had sent one of the village children down with an urgent message. I hopped in and off we went. When we got there, we looked into that awful room. They were all just sitting there, you know. The doctor said Brenda must have been dead for at least six hours. There were no signs of violence. She just lay across the arm of the chair with that, that look on her face. George and Owen were singing bits and pieces of different Monty Python songs and talking complete nonsense. It was absolutely awful to see. I couldn't stand it. And the doctor was as white as a sheet. He even sort of fainted into one of the chairs, and I swear we were close to having another one on our hands. Remarkable. Most remarkable. I think we had better go down to Tredenic Wartha without any more delay. I'll be honest, I haven't had too many cases that at first sight were more unusual than this one. Wow, John, that's certainly... Something. Sounds like you had less than nothing to go on. Yes, AC, I have to be honest. Nothing that first morning did much good to advance our investigation at all. But something did happen that I think it's worth telling the thrillers about. As we got close to the house where all this happened, we were going down a tiny lane when an ambulance bumped up past us. We had to move aside to let it pass. And as we did, I turned around and looked in the back. Through the window, I could see this 
absolutely contorted face, grinning out at me, teeth gnashing, eyes staring, the whole works. They were, it turned out, taking Mr. Trigenis's brothers for involuntary commitment. That was not the sight we wanted just before heading into the house. On the bright side, the house was big and well lit and clean, more like one of those gentrified rental villas than a real cottage, you know. Lots of flowers out in the garden, and that's where the window was, where Mortimer Trigenis believed something evil came up and blasted the mind of his sister and brothers. Holmes wandered slowly and carefully through the flower pots and along the path before we headed up to the porch. It was pretty unlike him, but he actually was so busy thinking, I guessed, that he tripped over a full watering can and spilled it all over the path and our feet. As we walked into the house, we were met by the gardener, Mr. Logan. Mr. Logan, can you tell me what you might have heard overnight? Don't be afraid. I am just trying to figure out what's going on. Sir, honestly, I heard nothing. I've been having a lot of trouble sleeping lately. So I took an ambient before bed. This put me right out, I'll tell you. And how had all the Trigenesis seemed lately? Were they anxious about anything, having troubles? Oh, no, sir. Honestly, I've worked here for close to 10 years, and it seems like they were doing better than ever. My Christmas bonus this year was twice what it normally was. Can you tell me what happened today? I wish I could tell you much at all, sir, but I walked in that room and I don't know what came up with me, but I passed out. I don't know if I was still, if it was the sight of them or if I was still unsteady from the end, but wow. When I finally did come to, I opened the window to try to air the place out. Anyhow, once I did that, I called one of the neighbor kids and we figured out how to reach the doctor and I went straight to bed. I didn't even come downstairs when the ambulance got here. Tell you what, though, sir, there is no way I'm staying in this house even one more night. I'm going to go stay with my cousin over in St. Ives. Uh, John, that sure wasn't much to go on either, was it? You've got that right, AC. And then we were faced with the incredibly unpleasant task of seeing Brenda Trigenesis' body, which the paramedics had moved to the guest room to await the funeral home's arrival. As you heard in my recording, she had died with this look of total horror on her face. And as I sit here now, I tell you, I hope I never see anything like it again in my life. But at that point, it was time to head into the den where they'd all been playing cards. Holmes and I looked around. We saw some ashes from a recent fire in the fireplace and cards scattered all over the table. The chairs were pushed back toward the wall, but otherwise everything seemed exactly as it had been described to us from the night before. And what was Mr. Holmes doing at this time? Holmes? <laughs> I mean, he was being Holmes, you know. He paced around the room. He sat in each of the chairs and rearranged them around the table. He tested how much of the garden you could see from each. He examined the floor, the ceiling, the fireplace, the whole works. The bad news was I never saw the look. He gets this light in his eyes and his 
jaw clenches and he usually makes this sort of odd huffing sound when he gets some kind of clue. But no huffing here, just weirdness. But nothing ever gets Holmes down, not really, and he just kept digging. Why a fire? This is a tiny room. Did they always have fires here at night in the spring? It was just really cold and damp on the walk over. So once I arrived, I asked Brenda if she'd be kind of, if we, if she'd be okay if we lit a fire, and we did. What are you going to do now, Mr. Holmes? Hmm. Well, Watson, you and my doctor seem to think that I should lay off the tobacco poisoning, but I believe this calls for a smoke. And as for you, Mr. Trigenis, if it's all the same, I think Watson and, Watson and I, excuse me, will head back to our cottage. I don't see how any new factor is likely to come to our notice here. I'll think on things, Mr. Trigenis, and if something occurs, I'll certainly communicate with you and the vicar. In the meantime, good day to you both. So, AC, we did go back to the cottage, and we just sat there. Holmes didn't talk, just chain-smoked those horrible smelling Marlboro menthols for hours. I had just about dozed off sitting up when he jumped up and nearly added me to the list of victims from the day, let me tell you. It won't do, Watson. <laughs> Come on, let's go for a walk along the cliffs and look for some of those flint arrows. We're more likely to find them than clues to this problem. To let the brain work without sufficient material is like racing an engine. It wrecks itself to pieces. I have always said the sea air, sunshine and patience, Watson. That's what we need and everything else will come. Fine, we can walk. But I do hope you'll tell me what we're supposed to do to resolve this quickly. This is my vacation, you know. Hmm, yes. To start, let's calmly define our position, Watson. If we can get a firm grip on the very little we do know, then when fresh facts arise, we can be ready to fit them into their places. Let me start by saying this. I take it that neither of us is prepared to admit supernatural uh, interference into human affairs. Correct, Watson? I would certainly say so. So we can begin by ruling that entirely out of our minds. Very good. There remain three people who, can, who have been grievously harmed by some conscious or unconscious human agency. That too is firm ground. Now, when did this happen? Evidently, assuming his narrative to be true, it was immediately after Mr. Mortimer Trigenis had left the room. Now see, Watson, that's a very important point. The presumption is that it was within a few minutes afterward. The cards were still on the table, it was past when everyone usually went to bed, but for some reason they hadn't changed their positions or even pushed back their chairs. So I repeat that whatever happened, happened immediately after our friend Mort left and not later than 11 o'clock last night. Our next obvious step is to check as far as we can what Mortimer Trigenis did after he left the room. 
for this it was not difficult, and his actions then do seem to be above suspicion. Uh, how can you be so sure of that, Holmes? I'm afraid I don't follow. <sighs> Knowing my methods, as you do, Watson, did you take notice of my somewhat clumsy watering can situation? By getting the sandy path there wet, while Mr. Trajanus was nearby, I was able to obtain a wonderfully clear impression of his foot, much more so than might otherwise have been possible. Last night was also wet, you will remember, and it wasn't difficult having obtained a sample print to pick out his tracks among others and to follow his movements. He appears to have walked away swiftly in the direction of the vicarage. But if Mortimer Trigenis disappeared from the scene and yet somehow someone outside the house affected his siblings, well, how do we figure out who that would be and how that person left them all with such an expression of horror? Those are the right questions to ask, Doctor. Mr. Logan may be eliminated. He has nothing to gain from the loss of the Trigenesis. Is there any evidence that someone crept up to the garden window and somehow did something so terrifying that it drove those who saw it out of their senses? The only suggestion in this direction comes from Mr. Trigenis himself, who says that his brother spoke about some movement in the garden that's certainly remarkable as the night was rainy, cloudy, and dark. Anyone who had planned to alarm these people would pretty much need to be pressed right against the window in order to be seen. I did observe that there's a three-foot border of flowers outside this window, but there's no indication of a footmark. It's pretty difficult to imagine then how any outsider could have made so terrible an impression on this group nor have we found any possible motive for such a strange and elaborate plot. You perceive our difficulties, Watson? They are only too clear. And yet, with a little more material, may we find that we are not insurmountable. I would guess that among our extensive archives of our work, Watson, you might find some other cases that are nearly as obscure. But for now, we're going to put this case aside until we have more accurate data. And instead, we'll spend our morning pursuing the relics of the Iron Age. AC, I think you and your listeners have probably heard me say before in interviews that my friend Holmes has some truly unbelievable capacity for mental detachment, dissociation even. Let me say for the record, I don't think I ever noticed that capacity more than on that spring morning. We spent two hours, two hours, AC, talking about arrowheads and shards and who knows what else, acting as if there was no mystery at all waiting for him to solve it. Truly baffling, I must say. But he didn't get to stay so detached. When we got back to our cottage in the afternoon, we found a visitor waiting for us, and that certainly brought our minds back to the matter at hand. We both recognized this visitor immediately. She looked like an Amazon, tall, imposing, with a face much older than her years, fierce eyes, nose like a hawk, wild hair. Everyone who's ever watched YouTube can probably already recognize her from my description. 
I certainly think I do, Dr. Watson, but do you want to clue in any of our listeners who are uh, maybe living under a rock? <laughs> okay, so for those who aren't aware, our visitor was Dr. Lenina Sterndale, who most would know as the face of the Stern Warnings YouTube channel. Back in 07, she wasn't the millionaire vlogger success she became later, but she was certainly recognizable. I mean, she hasn't released a new episode for years at this point, and her stuff is still trending more often than not. We'd actually heard she was in Cornwall and even seen her in the distance. Pretty easy to do on a moor when the person in question is 185 centimeter. Oh, you'd say uh, maybe six foot one, a woman. But even back then, everyone knew you didn't actually want to talk to Dr. Sterndale. Great to watch, sure, but the lady was such a notorious introvert that I'm pretty sure the phrase social distancing was actually invented for her. Even when she was filming new episodes of her show, you know the one where she does some stupidly dangerous thing and then gives watchers tips on how to do it without dying? No matter what, it was almost always just her on screen. So, to have her sitting at our cottage and hear her asking Holmes almost warmly about whether he had made any advances in reconstructing what had happened to the Trigenesis, Weird is just the only word there is for that, AC. Surreal. I was waiting to see a camera crew to figure out if it was a setup for a future episode of Stern Warnings, but no, it was just Dr. Sternsdale by herself, full of questions. I'm not surprised that Cornwall police are totally useless. But as some maybe your water experience has suggests some actually possible explanation. I understand you might be reluctant to tell me, but let me assure you that none of this is for my show. I'm here for personal reason, since I stay in this area. Anytime I'm not recording to, to get some peace and quiet. I got into know all the tragedies very well, and actually on my mother's side, there are some kind of cousins some debris removed. So hearing what has happened has really shaken me. I should tell you, I was on my way to catch a flight to Uruguay when the news reached me this morning. I told my driver to bring me straight back to see what I could do to help. Did you have flight insurance? Changing flights isn't as easy as it used to be, as I'm sure you know. And I hear you have sponsors who might not look kindly on the plane double to transport you and your crew. I go another time. This is important. Hmm. That's friendship, all right. I told you we were family. Right, right. Cousins of your mother. Had you already sent your crew down to Uruguay? Some of them, but most of them were still in the hotel here. Hmm. I see. But tell me. Surely you didn't hear about this event in the morning's news. I don't think there would have been time. No, sir. I have gotten a text. Mm. And I might, and might I ask from whom? You're very curious, Mr. Holmes. Literally my job. I have no trouble to telling you. It was Mr. Rodhead, the vicar, who sent me the text that made me turn around. I see. And thank you. 
Now I can say, to answer your original question, that no, I haven't cleared my mind entirely on the subject of this case, but I do have every hope of reaching some conclusion. It would be premature, you could say. Holmes, what do you think we should do? Patience, Watson, just wait about five minutes and then I'll follow her. You'll wait here, of course. Ah, right, Holmes. I'll just wait here. Well, this is certainly getting stranger and stranger, Doctor. I mean, I've been a true crime nerd for like almost 15 years now. I think I started following it when I was maybe eight or nine. And I'm thinking back to this case and I don't remember hearing about Dr. Sternsdale at all. No, you're not wrong, AC. We'll get to that in just a minute here. In the meantime, what I can tell you is that I did what I said and I waited for Holmes in the cottage while he took care of business. Oh, speaking of taking care of business, Dr. Watson, we do need to pause for a moment to hear from another one of our sponsors. Thrillers, thanks for listening and make sure you stay tuned to find out how Holmes and Watson solved this case. Ooh, spoiler alert there, I guess. Have you been feeling Have you been feeling like something of a dullard? Like you just crawled out from under a rock? Maybe your extraordinary mental powers are not what they once were. What you need is Moriarty. One cup of this caffeine-packed concoction will allow you to conquer the impossible. It's the tea of the first order designed for discerning minds. Get Moriarty today at a Baker Street grocery near you. thrillers. Thanks for staying tuned as we hear from Dr. Watson about this Cornwall conundrum case he worked with Sherlock Holmes. So doctor, where had we left you? You were waiting at the cottage and Holmes was looking around? <laughs> Indeed. So of course I have no recordings of whatever Holmes saw and did, but thankfully he came home and was willing to talk things through with me. Holmes, where on earth have you been? I went to the Plymouth Hotel, Watson. I got the name of it from the vicar, and I stopped by to make sure that Dr. Lenina Stern's account was true. It appears that she did indeed spend last night there, and that their airport shuttle service actually did take some of her crew to the airport for the flight to Uruguay. And while Sterndale and some others from the crew remained here, so, what do you make of that, Watson? She is deeply interested in the case? Mm, deeply interested, yes. I think there is a thread here which we hadn't yet grasped and which might lead us through the tangle. Cheer up, Watson, for I'm pretty sure that not everything has yet come to light. When it does, I think you'll find we can leave these difficulties behind us. I should hope so. Uh, John, that's, I mean, I'm not a crime solver myself, but to me, that's not a lot to go on, is it? Indeed, it's not, AC. But that didn't last long. Little did I realize how soon Holmes's prediction would come true, or how sinister a new development would take place. 
I was shaving that morning, looking out of my bathroom window when I saw a moped coming up the lane. Once the rider took off their helmet, I could see it was our friend, the vicar. Holmes was already in the living room and the two of us rushed out to meet them. Devils, Mr. Holmes. This poor parish is devil-ridden. Satan himself is here. We are at his mercy. Mr. Mortimer Tregenis died during the night and with exactly the same symptoms as the rest of his family. Can you fit us both on your moped? Uh, if we can be somewhat um, friendly, then yes, I can. Then what sooner? We'll hold off on breakfast. Mr. Roundhay, take mm. us to your place quickly. Hurry, hurry before any disturb anyone disturbs the evidence. Mm. AC, I guess you can imagine how surprised we were at this point. After a moped ride I should not like to repeat any time soon, we came to the vicarage where Mr. Tregenis's rooms were in a sort of wing on the side, with a living room and a kitchenette below and a bedroom and bath above it. The living space had a window that looked out into the lawn. We had arrived before the doctor or the police, so everything was totally undisturbed, which of course thrilled Holmes to no end. I can only imagine. I'm not sure how the police must feel about it, but I have a feeling we're going to get to that later. Hey, thrillers, now's your chance to vote in our weekly poll. If you were to get to a crime scene first, would you wait for the authorities or would you start to investigate? Vote now at twilightthrillerradio.com. Hey, John. It does sound like things were getting good, so why don't you tell us what happened next? Well, let me describe exactly the scene we saw that morning. I'm telling you, I will never get it out of my mind. The room itself was just absolutely horrible and depressing and stuffy. Thankfully, the house cleaner at the vicarage, who had entered first, had opened the living room window, or else it would have been truly intolerable, I think. Much of the gloom came from the fact that there was an incense burner lit on the table, still smoking as we came in. There in a chair by the table sat Mr. Mortimer Tregenis, quite dead. He was leaning back in his chair, his glasses were pushed up in his forehead, and his face was looking toward the window. Worst of all, AC, the worst of all was that he was making that same terrified, horrified face that his dead sister had made. His limbs were clenched up and his fingers twisted as if he had almost been seizing in fear. He was fully dressed, though he didn't look entirely put together, as if he had gotten ready in a hurry. We later found his bed had been slept in and that this tragedy had happened sometime early in the morning. AC, this is exactly where someone like my friend Holmes is in his element, let me tell you. It's like something came over him. Where he'd been somewhat distant, it's like a light came on, and in an instant, he was intense and alert, his eyes shining, his face serious, his feet tapping, and his fingers flicking back and forth over each other. It was like he was ready to spring. In minutes, he had been everywhere, out on the lawn, climbing in through the window, going around the room and quickly going up to the bedroom and opening the window there. That seemed to get him worked up yet again, for he leaned out the window and started shouting almost as if he was delighted. 
After that, he came back down the stairs, went back out through the open window, planted himself face down in the lawn like some sort of middle-aged slip and slide rider, and then hopped right back up and came through the window again and back into the living room. He suddenly began to examine the incense burner quite closely. It was pretty ordinary, like the one you see dotting dormitories all over the country, you know. But Holmes looked at it like it was the neatest thing he had ever seen, even taking some measurements, then scraping off some ashes and dropping them into an envelope, which he hastily jammed into his pocket. And it is about this time that the doctor and the police made their presence known, and Holmes thought it would be a good time to grab the vicar and pull the three of us out onto the lawn. I am glad to say that my investigation has not been, been entirely fruitless. I can't stay here to discuss the matter with the police, but I should be exceedingly grateful, Mr. Roundhay, if you could give the detective inspector my compliments and direct his attention to the bedroom window and to the incense burner. Each by itself is suggestive of what happened and together they are almost conclusive. If the police want to know more, I'd be glad to see any of them at the cottage but for our part, Watson, I think that perhaps we'll be better off elsewhere. elsewhere. John, now I'm very excited to see how our listeners vote this week. Sure sounds good Holmes did not wait for the police, but I admit I haven't figured out whatever he realized yet. AC, I don't know whether it's because the vicar forgot to pass on Holmes's message or what, but... We heard absolutely nothing for the police for the next couple of days. While we waited, Holmes spent a bunch of time smoking and just puttering around the cottage. But even more, he took long walks alone, never telling me where he'd been. After one, though, he came back with something that showed me some of what he'd been thinking. He bought an incense burner like the one we found next to Mr. Trigenis. He lit it using the matches he found at the vicarage, and then he carefully timed how long it took for the incense to burn out. That was a simple experiment. He did have another one that was much more unpleasant, and honestly, one I just soon forget, though I don't think I ever will. Of course, you remember, Watson, that there is a single common point of resemblance in the very different reports that have reached us. I mean, you know that everyone who first entered these rooms made it a point to comment on the atmosphere. In fact, when we talked to Mortimer Trigenis, when he described going to his family's home, do you remember he remarked that even the doctor almost fainted into a chair? I, that is, I, I did not recall that, Holmes. You had forgotten? <sighs> I'm positive you truly did. And you'll also remember that Mr. Logan, the gardener, told us that he himself passed out after he entered the room and afterward he opened the window. In the second case, that of Mortimer Genis himself, you surely can't have forgotten the horrible stuffiness of the room when we arrived, even though the cleaners had opened the window, right? Excuse me. And here's something I found out, Watson. The cleaning person who opened the window got so sick, they ended up going home and to bed. 
I'm sure you can see where this is leading, right, Watson? In both cases, there is clearly evidence of something poisonous in the room. In each case, also, there is some kind of fire going on in the room. In the one case, a fire in the fireplace, in the other, the incense burner. The fire was needed, but why the burner? Especially when Mr. Trigenis clearly had come downstairs in a hurry. In my mind, surely there is some connection between these three things, the burner, the stuffy atmosphere, and finally, the madness or death of those unfortunate people. Would you concur? Uh, yes, I concur, but I also think- At least we may accept it as a working hypothesis. Let's suppose then that something was burnt in each case, something that, when it was, caused these strange toxic effects. Very good, right? In the first case, that of the Trigenis family, whatever this, this substance was, it was put in the fireplace. The window was shut, but the fire would naturally carry fumes to some extent up the chimney, so you would expect any effects of whatever poison it was to be less than in the second case, where there was less chance for the smoke to escape. And our result bear up with this, right? In the first case, only the woman died, with her brothers, who were much larger and thus probably less susceptible, exhibiting some kind of temporary or permanent hallucination that is apparently one of the first effects of the drug. In the second case, the result was complete, and Mr. Trigenis is, we clearly know, dead. The facts, therefore, seem to bear out our theory. This is a poison that somehow took effect when it was set afire. So, Watson, with this train of thought in my head, naturally, my next step was to look around in Mortimer Trigenis' living room to find some remains of the substance. The obvious place to look was the incense burner. And sure enough, it was full of flaky ashes and around the edges, there was a fringe of brownish powder that hadn't yet burnt. I took half of this, like you saw, and put it in an envelope. Why half, Holmes? It is not for me, my dear Watson, to stand in the way of the official police force. No, I was totally willing to leave them all the evidence I had found. The poison was still there, if they'd had the sense to find it. Now, Watson, do you know what we are going to do? Yeah. Go to the police. <sighs> no, Watson. Now we will light our incense burner. We will, though, take the precaution of opening our, our window to avoid our own premature demise. And what's more, you're going to go sit in that recliner near the open window unless and I admit you might be wise to do this, you decide you have want nothing to do with this nonsense. I'm sitting, now what? Oh, you're going to see it out with me? <laughs> and here I thought I knew you. You surprise me, my friend. I'm going to sit here in this chair facing you that way, we're the same distance from the poison and face-to-face. -face. We'll leave the door open. This way, each of us can watch the other one, and if something seems alarming, we can call the mess off. Sound good? Sounds great. All right, then. Here we go. I'm taking this powder, or what's left of it, from the envelope, 
I am adding it to the incense burner. And now, Watson, we wait. So, John, I feel like maybe I should have played the final Jeopardy music there instead. So how did all of this go? I mean, you're alive in here, which is great, but I'm not getting a good feeling. You're not the only one, AC. It didn't take long. I'd barely settled into the recliner when I started to smell this heavy, musky odor, and it made me feel terribly sick to my stomach. At the very first whiff, it's like my imagination took off. I felt like I saw thick, black clouds in front of my eyes and in my head I just was absolutely convinced it's somewhere in this cloud even though I couldn't see anything everything horrible in the universe was just waiting there were these vague shapes kind of swimming through it my anxiety went higher and higher every time I saw one like I thought they were each coming for me I was having a full-fledged panic attack by this time. I felt like my hair was standing on end. My eyes were bulging out, my mouth was open, and my tongue was thick like leather. I truly thought I was going to snap. I think I tried to scream, but all that happened was I became vaguely aware of some sort of hoarse croaking, and then I realized it was me but not me at the same time. Talk about mind blowing, right? But somehow in the middle of all this, I broke through the cloud just enough to look over and see Holmes's face. Would you believe it, AC? It was white, rigid, absolutely pinched with horror. It was the same look I'd seen in the two people who died. Somehow that vision gave me the burst of adrenaline I needed to sober up just enough. I jumped from my chair, threw my arms around Holmes, and then pulled him with me in some kind of zombie lurch out the door until we were both laying side by side on the grass, just feeling the sun as the terror slowly began to dissipate. It seemed to take forever, but after a while, we got ourselves together, and there we were, sitting on the grass, wiping sweat from our foreheads, and looking at each other with this absolute expression of, pardon my language, what the actual hell just happened? Happened. <laughs> Bloody hell, Watson. <coughs> I don't know if I should say thanks or sorry or both. <coughs> this was stupid and an unjustifiable experiment, even for me, and doubly so to do to a friend. I am truly very sorry. <coughs> you know, it is my greatest joy and privilege to help you. <clears throat> yes, it would be a waste to drive ourselves crazy, right, Watson? Though any smart observer would certainly declare that we already were for trying this stunt. I'll be honest, I never imagined that the effect could be so sudden and so severe. I'm going to go in. 
only for a moment and bring that burner out here to dispose of. All right. All right, now we just need to give the room a little time to air out. I take it, Watson, that you don't have any more doubts about how these deaths happened? None whatsoever. Method? Sure. But the cause is just as obscure as before. Come on, let's sit over here in the gardens and talk about it a bit. I still feel like I'm a little <clears throat> off and I want to get away from here. Now then, I think we have to agree that all the evidence points to Mortrometrogenis being the criminal in the first tragedy, even though he was the victim in the second one. So what do we know about him? I mean, <clears throat> there was that story about there being some kind of family argument and then a reconciliation, right? Indeed. But how bad the fight or how meaningless the reconciliation? That we can't know. But here's what I do know. When I think of Mortimer with his foxy little face and those beady eyes hidden behind his glasses, I don't think of him to be what you'd call particularly forgiving. Circumstantial, that may be, but it adds up with some other things I know. Like what, Holmes? Next, do you remember that there was this idea about some, someone moving in the garden? that took our attention for a moment from the actual cause of the tragedy. And who was it that gave us that idea? Trogenis. He certainly had a, mo a motive for misleading us. <clears throat> and finally, if he did not throw whatever this poison is onto the fire just as he left the room, who could have? We know the whole thing occurred just after he left. And if anyone else had come in, the siblings Trogenis would certainly have gotten up given how strange it is that anyone in this sleepy town would come to visit after 10 p.m. So for this first case, it does seem that all the evidence points to Mortimer as the culprit. Then his own death was suicide. Well, Watson, that's not a terrible idea on the face of it. Someone who was feeling guilty about the fate of his whole family might certainly be driven by grief and remorse to end it all. But I do think there are some arguments to be made against that. Uh, I abide. What are those? Patience, Watson. Fortunately, there is one person who knows all about it, and I have made arrangements for us to hear the facts this afternoon from her own lips. Ah, she's here a bit early. Perhaps you would kindly step this way, Dr. Lenina Sterndale. We have been conducting something of a, let's say, a chemistry experiment indoors. And our living room is not exactly fit for company right now. You sent for me, Mr. Holmes. I got your text about an hour ago, and I came. Though I don't really know what I showed Olivia. Mm. Perhaps we can clear that up before we part ways in a bit. At any rate, I'm glad you came. I know it's a little chilly outside here still, but my friend Watson and I have nearly made ourselves into an additional chapter in what the news reporters are calling the Cornish horror. So we'd really rather have some fresh air if it's all the same. And perhaps since the things we need to discuss are going to affect you personally in a, let's say a very intimate fashion, maybe it's just as well we should talk out here where there's no chance of things being overheard or recorded. I am at a loss as to what you see me would affect me in a 
Very intimidating fashion, Mr. Holmes. The killing of Morton Trigenis? You've got me on the edge of my seat here, John. Oh, that's where I was too, AC. Can I just tell you, I have met, made a lot of women angry in my day. And I have never seen one with a face like that. She turned a deep red color. The veins popped out on her forehead and she jumped up with her hands out, almost like she was going to take on Holmes MMA style. But then she stopped. And let me tell you, that was worse. And she looked even more dangerous somehow. Traveling like I do. You can imagine I have a lot of self-defense training, Mr. Holmes. Don't forget that. I have no desire to hurt you, but I won't hesitate if I'm provoked. Look, I have no desire to hurt you either, Dr. Sterndale, and you have to see the proof of that, which is that, knowing what I know, I texted you to come here rather than calling the police. Well, what do you mean? If you're trying to play a joke of someone, Mr. Holmes, you pick the wrong person. So quit playing around and tell me what you actually mean. Oh, I'll tell you, and here's why. I'm hoping if I'm on the level with you, you'll be on the level with me, because you should know what my next step, what my next step might be, will depend entirely on your defense. My defense. Yes, your defense. My defense is against what? Against the charge of killing Mortimer Trigenis. All right, I'm tired of this. Stop screwing around. The one who is screwing around here. Dr. Lenina Sterndale is you, not me. As proof, I'll tell you some of the facts upon which my conclusions are based. Let's start with you coming back here rather than catching that flight to Uruguay. I don't have a lot to say about this, except that it's what first tipped me off that you were one of the factors I'd have to take into account in all this drama. I came back. <laughs> oh, you told me your reasons and I find them unconvincing and inadequate. Moving on. You came down here to ask me who I suspected. I refused to answer you, and then went to the vicarage, waited outside it for a while, and finally went back to your place. How did you know that? I followed you. I saw no one. That's exactly what you should expect to see when I follow you. At any rate, after that, you had a restless night at home where I think you were putting some plans together. Then, early the next morning, you started them in motion. You left home just as the sun was coming up. As you did, you grabbed some reddish gravel that was piled up near your gate. You then walked a mile to the vicarage and quite quickly, I'll add, under 10 minutes walking some feet. Oh, and a note. You did this wearing the same pair of Nikes that you're wearing now. Once you got to the vicarage, you went through the orchard and around the side hedge. Coming out under Mr. Trigenis's window, the sun was up, but no one was awake yet. That's when you took some of that gravel out of your pocket and threw it toward Mr. Trigenis's bedroom window. What are you, psychic? This is a mess. It only took two, maybe three handfuls before old Mort came to the window. 
You waved at him to come down. He got dressed in a rush and headed to his living room. You came in through the window, talked to him very briefly while you paced the room. Then you went out through the window again and closed it from outside, standing on the lawn and watching what occurred. Finally, you, once you saw Trigenis die, you went back just like you came. Now, Dr. Sterndale, what I need to know is why. If you hesitate, if you lie to me, if you give me half answers, rest assured this will no longer be in my hands and you'll have other problems to deal with. Answer wisely. Let me show you a picture on my phone. This is what I have done it. Wow, the two of you look beautiful together. That's you and Brenda Trigenis. Yes, my Brenda. I loved her for years and she loved me back. Everyone wondered what I picked Conworld to get away. What I was so private. Well, now you know, it was to be close to her. We couldn't get married and I don't know if or when England will ever make it legal. And without being able to actually protect her legally and financially. Why on earth would I expose her to the haters? Even though I get plenty of them myself. But she doesn't deserve that. She waited for years. I waited for years. What on earth were we waiting for? The vicar knew he was in our confidence. God bless the Episcopalian, right? That was why he texted me and I came back. What on earth did some suitcase and fly fit to why it means when I lost my love? Is that what you wanted, Mr. Holmes? You, Watson, I hear you're a doctor. Are you familiar with the party drugs they call in Radix? I've heard of it, but I don't know much about it. it. Doesn't seem like anyone has been able to get a good toxicology study because it metabolizes so quick, right? That's right. His scientific name is Radic Pedis Diaboli, David Food Root. And as far as I know, this packet I have right here is the only sample of it's outside of a couple of very closely guarded lab in South America. It's the roof of a special cultivar of cannabis, one that's been grafted with certain other plants, which will say, rather strong an effect than your garden variety sativas. The root end of shape like a foot, but a foot that's half human and half golf hoof. That's how it got its name. I know about it for a couple of years, even ever since I went to that rave in Uruguay, I show in an, on my, of my first episode. It's, for, it's pre, pretty closely protect, protected secret because the people using it not what you might call cooperative with government and scientists. They prefer a more terrorist approach, but they needed someone to help spread the propaganda and I have a growing beautiful following and all I asked in exchange was a little bit of it to keep us insurance. I originally wanted that in case they came after me, you understand, figuring maybe having a rough sample would help someone figure out if I done for.
How generous of you. Don't be an asshole. I am about to tell you what actually happened. It's clear to know I love already, and it's in my best interest that you know the whole story. I already told you about the relationship that I, that I have with the Trinities. We are not actually considered, but none of the brothers ever paying any attention. And it may, it's uh, it much less obvious when I wanted to spend so much time with Brenda, sharing a room with and everything. In general, I was friendly with Brenda brothers, though it was Hawaii before I met more. Because on my flight up on my fights about money, you already know about. Once they have all made up, I met him too. And all I can say is that he gave me the creeps. He didn't do anything specific. He was just I'm putting and setting. And it takes a lot to sell me. A couple of weeks ago, he stopped by my place. I'm not sure what he wanted, but I started showing him some of my collection. I've talked about radix, never by my name, only in general, with a few people, including Brenda. So I didn't think it was a problem to mention that it stimulates the fear response in the brain. And I have the body cannot tolerate that for too long before it turned to full dissociation or even death. We even talk about how hard it would be to be detected. I feel like an idiot, but at this point, I consider his family. Not a cousin, but uh, brother-in-law, because I would tell you, I truly consider Brenda my wife. That I do believe wholeheartedly. I can say he managed it because I never left the room, but I have no doubt that what I was showing him, this or that, that he managed to grab at least a bit of the radix powder. He got, he keep asking me about how much it would be to take products of kind of delirium and how long of an expo. The thing is, those are the kind of question I always answer in on my show. So I don't think it's accurate to me that there was no reason he should need to know that. But I didn't see anything more about that visit until I got the bigger text. I'm pretty sure more thought I be aboard a plane and unwilling the risk, losing my sponsorship money. By the time he news got to me, but oh no, uh, I came back right away. And of course, as soon as I heard some of the details, I was sure it was Radix. I came to see you because I was desperately hoping you found some other explanation. But I knew. I was convinced that Mortimer was Brenda's murderer. I realized that even though his brother weren't dead, if they weren't declared unfit, they have controlled the money of all four of them as they only same there, so he poisons uh, the inbats, throwing Radix under fire, draw two of them out of the mine, and kill his sister, Brenda, one the one human being I love, I ever loved, and who has ever loved me. So that's the crime. But what about the pushing men? Indeed, 
This is the part I'm most curious about, I admit. Do go on. I have to decide. Do I go to the police? How on earth could I prove it? In a country that doesn't believe two women can be in love, what chance do I have to convince a jury that there is poison that you can detect in the body? Even while it's, it is still having an effect? I have enough with people like that, and I couldn't afford to fail Brenda by putting our fate in, a, in their hands. That was just too much. I said earlier, I have a lot of cause for self-defense training, Mr. Holmes. Brenda was like part of me, and to defend her, I do anything. So I decided, even more would face to offer this. He subjects my love to, or I take care of him in some other way. But he was going to pay. And to be honest, I wanted to make myself pay too. You won't find somebody with more guilt than I have if I have never talked about rallies with him. That's it, that the whole thing beyond what you already knew. Like you said, I went to more place early and I knew it might be hard to wake him. So I got it up, the gravel that you mentioned, so that I could throw it up him without managing the window. He came down and let, and let me in so the window. I told him what I suspect and gave him the same warning ever. I have come to be both his judge and his insecure. I didn't have just the radics. I had a gun and he saw it. So I lit the incense burning, put the powder in and stood outside the window. I told him, I showed him and he tried to leave the room, but he believed me. In five minutes, he was dead. Five minutes doesn't seem long, but he suffered. Damn it, he deserved to suffer. And I feel nothing because he had done the same to my Brenda. That's it, Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson. That's my story. If either of you have ever loved a woman like I love Brenda, maybe you realize you didn't have done the same. In any rate, I'm putting my faith in your hands. Do what you like. Like I said, I couldn't possibly feel worse and without head on ears, I have said affairs on death. What were your plans? I had intent to go back to Hawaii and get lost. Originally, Brent and I planned to run away together. I have many episodes already filmed. So I realized then over time, um, people were seeing I'm here. They are everywhere, but I won't be. I have friends in South America who could have, have, have disappeared. Hmm. You can still do that, or at least half. I'm certainly not prepared to prevent you. I'm grateful. I'd say I see you around, but I won't. Be well, Mr. Holmes, doctor. 
This calls for a cigarette. I'm thinking something less immediately poisonous fumes would be a nice change. Watson, do you agree? This isn't a case where we're called on to interfere, is it? Our investigation has been independent and that means our actions can be too. Would you turn her in? I would not. I haven't loved anyone like that, Watson. <laughs> Maybe not even myself. But if I did, and if the person had met this kind of end, who knows? I might be in the same position. Who knows indeed? Well, Watson, I won't insult your intelligence and over-explain the rest. I saw the gravel on Mort's um, bedroom windowsill, and of course, it wasn't like anything in the yard at the vicarage, so that's where I started my search. It took a while, and it wasn't until I talked with Dr. Sterndale that, and visited her cottage that I saw where it must have come from. Having the incense burner lit with a strange powder on it was the last link in what you would have to admit is a pretty obvious chain. Good news, though, Watson. I think we can move on now. You can enjoy this vacation you seem to find so important, and I can get back to my linguistics paper. You know, I had an idea that if we search the Chaldean influences, we might just be able to find something interesting. Uh, John, I mean, wow. I have to say it's really lucky that we've known each other for a while now, or I would think you were trying to punk me. You're telling me that Dr. Lenina Sterndale, the legendary lost YouTuber, who was recently declared dead in her home country, disappeared because she murdered a man who killed his sister, who was her one true love? That's rough, man. Damn, Dr. Sterndale, I hope you found some peace. I, I guess that's exactly what I'm telling you, AC. Right, well, I can tell you right now that I don't think that there are many people among our thrillers, our listeners, who would have expected to see that one coming. So thrillers, especially those who are tuning in for the first time or anyone else who happened to tune in for probably the most surprising broadcast of my career, um, I give you the adventure of the devil's foot as told to us by the amazing Dr. John Watson. John, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm AC Doyle and this has been Twilight Thriller Radio. Thrillers, tune in next week. We've got a great episode about a literal cat burglar you won't want to miss. I mean, literally, they stole someone's cats. Hey, you know you care about cats, and unless a bunch of you start hitting that Patreon, we can't afford a guest like Dr. Watson every week, now can we? So don't forget to check us out on the web at twilightthrillerradio.com and rate us on your favorite listening platform. We'll see you next week. I'd like to thank the audience and the cast and Miguel Vela for the Twilight Thriller Radio um, sound theme that played at the beginning. Um, check us out. We will be posting a radio play version of this at upstartarts.com anchor. You can subscribe on your podcast, uh, favorite podcast platform because we have a lot of, we have posts from last year too. They're really fun to listen to on creepy nights. Um, so subscribe so you get to hear the uploaded version of this. 
And now I'd like to introduce the cast. I'm Michelle Denise Norton. I directed this, and here they are. Hey, everyone. I'm Joan Consilio. I played AC Doyle, the podcast host, and I also adapted this Arthur Conan Doyle play for Upstart's Use this year. Thank you, Joan. Hello, my name is Laura Kate Marshall, and I was your Dr. Watson. Hi, I'm Carolyn Stewart-Morales, and I played the formidable Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I'm Ashley White, and uh, I played the vicar, Mr. Roundhay. I'm Priscilla McFerrin, and I played the dastardly Mortimer Trigenis. I am Jalilin Balasoto, and I play Dr. Lenina Iskandai. Hi everyone, I'm Ashar Otto. I was stage manager and I play the gardener, Mr. Hogan. And that's everyone. Thank you again for listening. Check us out on social media and we will talk to you later. <laughs>